Um, his friends described him as being a good time, but Paul had a very deep, dark secret. Paul Bernardo was also the Scarborough rapist. In 1987, Paul started stalking young women in and about Scarborough, committing multiple sexual assaults, escalating in viciousness all through Ontario. Most of these assaults were on young women who he had stalked after they had exited their buses or cars or trains late in the evening. In 1987, Paul Bernardo committed his first rape. It was a 20-year-old woman who we won't name in front of her parents' home after he followed her home. The attack lasted more than half an hour. And gradually, over the course of May 1987, following all the way through 2nd and 3rd and 4th, and fifth, and sixth, and seventh, and eighth, and ninth rapes, Paul Bernardo continued to terrorize the young women who lived in and around Scarborough. But see, Paul, with these attacks, kept getting more vicious and vicious and vicious. And by May 26th of 1990, a little over three years later, Paul Bernardo committed his 11th rape. This rape lasted over an hour. He beat this poor woman viciously. He was very aggressive with her, left her bruised and, and very shaken. But the strength and courageousness of this 19-year-old young lady is amazing because she had a vivid recollection of her attacker and the police were able to use that to create a sketch and a composite photograph, which they released two days later and published in Toronto in the area newspapers. And by July 1990, two months later, they began receiving tips that Paul Bernardo fit the Scarborough Rapist composite, and he was interviewed by two detectives. So between May and September of 1990, the police had submitted more than 130 suspect samples for DNA testing when they received two reports that the person that they were looking for was Paul Bernardo. The first in June had been called in by a bank employee. The second call was from Tina Smyrnas, the wife of one of the three Smyrnas brothers who were among Paul Bernardo's closest friends. The Smyrnases told the detectives that Bernardo had been called in on a previous rape investigation once in December in 1987, but he had never been interviewed. He frequently talked about his sex life to Smyrnas and liked analingus, rough sex, and anal sex. Alex Smyrna's phrasing was awkward and stilted and consequently left detectives unsure of whether or not to take him sister, seriously. But after cross-checking several files, the detectives decided to interview Paul Bernardo. The interview on November 20th, 1990 lasted 35 minutes and Bernardo voluntarily gave samples for forensic testing. When the detectives asked Paul why he thought he was being investigated for the rapes, he admitted that he did resemble the composite. The detectives concluded that such a well-educated, well-adjusted, congenial young man couldn't be responsible for the vicious level of criminality involved being the Scarborough rapist. To them, he just seemed far more credible than Alex Furness, who, with his awkward, stilted, strangely speaking, and social awkwardness, may have been trying to just collect a reward. Paul Bernardo was released the following day. What also happened during Paul's life in this time is sometime in 1987, he met Carla Homolka. And the thing with Carla was is she was pretty and bright and she was exactly the thing that Paul Bernardo needed to unlock his deepest, darkest, most sick desires. 
Because the thing with Carla was, is that she was so desperate to be loved, so desperate for Paul's approval, that she was willing to do anything that he asked. And that meant that they immediately started having sex. They immediately started spending time together. And though Carla was a bit younger than Paul, he had complete control over her. So much so that at some point during their relationship, Paul admits to Carla that he is a Scarborough rapist and she encourages this behavior. We know this because after the fact, he is still committing rapes before they move in together. Paul by himself was angry and aggressive and violent enough against women to be the Scarborough rapist. But by meeting Carla, something in them psychologically created a tandem that allowed them to become rapists and murderers together. And that is where we get the story of the Ken and Barbie murderers or the schoolgirl schoolgirl killer murders, however you'd like to AKA them. So from now on, we're going to talk a little bit about Paul separately and then Carla separately and then the two together. But before we get there, we'll talk a little bit about their psychology. But Paul Bernardo and Carla Homoka are very often viewed as the most prolific rape murder duo in Canadian history. So much so that this is maybe one of the most infamous crime sprees to happen in the area. Interestingly enough, I guess the question that often lingers with people is how to, I guess we'll say, well-off, middle to upper class, people who are smart and intelligent become deviant rapists and murderers. And I think that's the thing that is so scary about it, because if they're able to become rapists and murderers or decide to be rapists and murderers, then anybody could. And we see by the police interrogation and their subsequent handling of the Scarborough rapist case that sometimes the monsters aren't monsters at all. They're the people walking among us, the people that are able to hide in plain sight. You are listening to Murder V. Wrote, and I am your host, V. I wanted to have a quick discussion about the psychology of a rapist. This episode is very different because we have two offenders to discuss, but what I found is that the research about why couples in particular kill is pretty lacking because very honestly, it's very, very rare for couples to kill. But I will address that briefly before we talk about the psychology of rape. So in the case of most couples that murder together, we find that there are a couple of factors that generally present themselves in most of these cases. One, we see some kind of sexual deviancy between the couples. So essentially we find people that are broken halves of themselves or have broken pieces and then they find other people with similar broken pieces. And these are the people that they cling to because they feel like they in some way understand the brokenness or the sexual de deviancy. So in a lot of times we see um, rape among family members. We see um, incest in a lot of these cases or some type of sexual assault or sexual predation that the offenders have witnessed in other family members. Another factor that we very often witness in couples that kill um, is that the female partner is normally younger than the male partner. In our 
case today with Carla Homoka and Paul Bernardo. 17-year-old Carla was actually six years younger than Paul when they initially met. The other thing that we also see is that in most of these cases, there is an intense emotional connection that immediately starts and then just continues to grow when they're wrapped up in each other and the illegal behavior. Also, in the case of Paul and Carla, they had sex on the first night that they met and she was immediately willing to bend to all his needs and become a complete submissive sexually to him, which I'm sure is something that we will see later, but it very much excited Paul because he enjoyed that violence and dominance of women. And the last thing that we often see in these couples are that the women do not have any type of criminal record prior to meeting the men that they will normally commit these crimes with. So for whatever reason, they find these men who normally have some type of criminal record prior and they are enamored or drawn in or fixated on that person and those habits i guess we could say rub off on them or they begin to take on the personality of the more dominant partner and in this case that is normally the male partner now i want to move on from that because again that's not really the focus of the story here but in some ways about the psychology of a rapist and how that very often escalates there are multiple answers to why people commit rape. It's a, actually a very complicated question. Um, people that commit sexual assault can be any kind of person. That isn't to make you afraid of everyone that you meet, but just to say there isn't a specific type or demographic or race or ethnicity of people that actually commit rapes. Quite honestly, it kind of varies across the board. Old, young, different races, different socioeconomic backgrounds, it doesn't seem to matter where are you from and who you are, These pretty much any of these people could be rapist or have committed such a criminal offense. Now, again, I said that motives behind rape are very hard to quantify or, qual- or qualify, and the reasons or motives vary, but most studies show that rapists have some common characteristics. For instance, they normally lack empathy, which is something that you would see in the psychopath, um, narcissism, again. And then, of course, the main one is feelings of hostility towards women. And that is something that is very common across the board in what we see in male rapists. We also see this level of toxic masculinity. And I know that that has been a buzzword for the past few years. And I don't want you to immediately stop listening because I've said the words toxic masculinity. But let's really break down what we mean in this instance. So Sherry Hamby, who is a research professor at the Psychology of University of South in the U.S. state, says that sexual assault is not about sexual gratification or sexual interest, but it's more about dominating people. A lot of offenders of rape and other sexual assaults are young men. They only have really this one way of having social status among male peers, and in our society, that means to be highly sexual experienced and often not being sexually active is stigmatized among their male peers. These types of peer pressures very often set up men to become sexual offenders because they're kind of in a panic to be found out as frauds, I guess, or imposter syndrome, if you'd like to call it. So there are some elements that work in the culture that 
suggests that men should assert dominance over women as a form of masculinity, or if not, they'll be stigmatized. Which, not to say that that means everyone's going to become a rapist, because quite honestly, pretty much every young man is pressured in some way or have this illusion that sexual activity is linked to masculinity, unless that idea is unlearned. So obviously not everyone we know is a rapist, and many of us know guys who are not rapists at all. Rape I would like to establish, first of all, is not necessarily behavior or mental disorder. It's criminal offense. So rapists can have psychological disorders. They can have mental disorders, but there is no disorder specifically that would compel a person to rape. There are arguments that rape is an adaptation. Basically, that it is a result of Darwinian selection and it is an opinion to be evolved to increase the reproductive success in men. So the hypothesis here is that most women that are raped are of childbearing age and this this bit of information supports the hypothesis that rape derives from desire to reproduce now i don't necessarily agree with this and i forgot to say this but this theory comes from two evolutionary biologists randy thornhill and an evolutionary anthropologist craig palmer so for them the primary motive behind rape is actually sex i don't necessarily agree with that but I just wanted to point out that there are some contrasting opinions about that. Um, I will say that they wrote a book called A Natural History of Rape, Biological Basis of Sexual Coercion, that was criticized very sharply by the science journal in Nature. They basically just said that the book's hypotheses were, hypotheses were misleading and biased and could equally support alternative explanations. So most psychologists would agree, aside from these two gentlemen, um, that rape exclusively deals in issues of power and violence. Rape is not necessarily about lust, but it is absolutely motivated by the urge to control and dominate, but that it could also be driven by a hatred and hostility towards women. Rapists often see women as sex objects who are there to fulfill a men's sexual needs. They tend to hold face belief, false beliefs, which are often described as rape myths. For instance, a rapist can believe that if a woman says no, she really means yes, and that she's just playing around or challenging him. So what this means is that very often for a rapist, they create a fantasy in their head where they may approach a woman and say, you know, hey, I'd really like to take you out or I want to get your number. And then when the woman says no, in their mind, they take that as she's playing hard to get and it's a yes. And now I'm going to follow her home and take it because that's what she wants. When Antonia Abbey, was, who was a social psychologist at Wayne State University in Detroit, was doing some research, she said that she had one repeat assaulter who she had spoke to who believed that women were, quote, just playing hard to get. And another believed that, quote, most women say no at first most times. And a man has to persist to determine if she really means it. Another, uh, yet another of her re repeat offenders was quoted as saying, I felt as if I'd gotten something that I was entitled to, and I felt I was repaying her for sexually arousing me. Most of these men described both the rape experiences as powerful and titillating and, quote, very exciting. So what we see here is this idea that these men have built this fantasy or this idea in their minds that women do not have autonomy over their body in the way that no just means no. Essentially, they are putting women in the role of a sexual gatekeeper, meaning that 
it is a woman's responsibility to rebuff sexual advances. But as a man, you should still push past that because she really doesn't mean what she's saying, which we all know to be true because consent is the absolute end all be all and no does mean no. So according to Hamby, for men in such cultures such as ours, part of the cultural training that men have is for them to lose touch with their emotions, which I think for a lot of women or men, they would say that, you know, at some point they were taught, you know, men don't cry and men don't are not sad or you shouldn't talk to people about your emotions. So what we get is a generation or grown up men who don't know how to talk about their feelings or they're not aware of the feelings that they have and how that affects other people and they don't care. So the link between narcissism and rape seems to be really, really strong with repeat offenders because one of the key characteristics that are shared by rapists and narcissists is this tendency to dehumanize other people. There are several different types of rapists now that we've covered kind of the background in the psychology. There is an opportunistic rapist. That is a type of rapist who seizes any chance for sexual gratification such as the loss of self-control on the part of their victim under the influence of alcohol. So when I was in college, which was many moons ago, we won't talk about that much, we were told something called a gray area rape. That is what we refer to it as. So, I mean, obviously times have changed and I realize that now rape is just rape. But we were told that it was something called a gray area rape. And it was this idea that, yes, as a, as a person, if you are drunk or high or under the influence of drugs or alcohol or anything that would diminish your capacity consent, then that was in fact rape. Even if there was some type of gray area because it didn't feel like it because maybe it was your boyfriend or your date for the night and you were just too drunk to really remember. But again, you're too drunk to consent. And now we realize as a society that you have to be at your full capacity to be able to consent to sex. The next type is a sadistic rapist whose motivation is to humiliate and degrade victims. These type of rapists very often may like strip the person down or beat them or spit on them or do some type of ritualistic thing with them. I won't get too far into that. Um, I will say that I would, I would in some ways characterize Paul Bernardo as a sadistic rapist. But I will also say that he is in some way a vindictive rapist, and we'll get to that. So a vindictive rapist also has anger and aggression that is focused directly towards women, which we are going to get into why Paul fits into this category. But these type of rapists believe that they are permitted to sexually attack women because they feel like they've been hurt or rejected or wronged by women in the past. Rapists often deny having raped victims and frequently try to justify their actions. Uh, men who often admit to rape will try to find excuses for what they've done. Very often people who are rapists or admit to being rapists try to say things like, oh, well, she wanted it or I misunderstood or just because she was drunk, that doesn't mean that she didn't want it or, well, she deserves it because she was looking at me and it turned me on. There, there are many ways and means in which rapists or admitted rapists or convicted rapists very often talk about their rapes in a way to disengage and distance themselves from the actions. So I will say this about rape. It is often one of the crimes that goes the most underreported and that is certainly much more the case for men who are raped. So we did not talk about men who are raped very much in this article, if at all. Um, and I'll save that for when I do another episode and we discuss that specifically. Um, but it wasn't necessarily pertinent to this particular case. But 
I just want people to keep in mind that sexual assault is obviously a criminal offense. And very often it goes underreported because people feel that they won't believe. They feel like the police won't handle it in a way that's delicate. And very often people that are attacked and survivors have PTSD and they don't want to relive the act that has happened to them. So a lot of victims choose to remain silent to avoid, you know, being stigmatized or being blamed for what happened to them. And this leaves rapists free to go find other victims. Paul Bernardo was born August 27th, 1964. Paul's family was wealthy, but a bit dysfunctional. His mother, Marilyn, was adopted by a well-to-do Toronto lawyer and was raised in a stable household. His father, Kenneth, was the son of an English woman Italian immigrant who created a highly successful marble and tile business. So again, another well-to-do family, but he was abusive to his wife and children. So Kenneth, instead of entering the family business, decided to become an accountant. Like his father, Kenneth got married to Marilyn and was very abusive to her as well. So Marilyn, not wanting to get a divorce, but also tired of the abuse, started having affairs and seeing a former boyfriend. And this is when she became pregnant with Paul. So Paul is not Kenneth's biological son, but he is listed as his father on the birth certificate. So in 1975, Kenneth, Paul's father, fondled a girl and was charged with child molestation. He was also sexually abusing Paul's sister. Paul's Paul Bernardo's mother, Marilyn, became depressed because of her husband's abuse, and she withdrew from family life and basically lived in the basement of their Scarborough home. Though the elder children felt, you know, the effects of this emotionally, mentally, it seemed that Paul really came out of it unscathed. He was described as a happy child. He was a young boy who smiled a lot, a lot, and he was really described as the perfect child that everyone wanted. He was polite. He was well-mannered. He did well in school. He was a Boy Scout. Gradually, as Paul got older, though, things began to change. And when he was 16, it all kind of did a 180. So Paul graduates from so Sir Wilfrid Lawyer, Laurier, college collegiate institute and he started working for amway who had this sales culture that had a deep effect on him um basically there were like he bought a bunch of books and tapes from like motivational speakers and the get rich and quick famous ex experts and him and his friends would practice those techniques that they learned from amway selling techniques on women they met in bars so by the time Bernardo was attending the University of Toronto Scarborough, he really had kind of developed these dark sexual fantasies and enjoyed humiliating women in public and would beat on the beat up the women he dated much like his father did and his grandfather. Um, so this is where I said the part about him being a sadistic rapist. I would describe it later. I really feel that Paul Bernardo got a kick out of demeaning and humiliating these poor women while he was raping them. So he meets Carla in 1987 and they are interested in each other immediately. And he just felt like Carla was the bee's knees and really very different from any of the other women that he had dated before. And they started kind of having sex immediately. But I will say, keep in mind that he was six years older than Carla and Carla was 17 when they met. So I found it particularly interesting that he took a liking to a 17-year-old, but I think he wanted somebody that he felt like he could essentially dominate who wouldn't ask a lot of questions. 
and he could just kind of get by with doing what he wanted to do. By like 1990, Paul and Carla are, you know, kind of into this relationship. They're in the swing of things. They're kind of enjoying stuff. Paul moves to St. Catharines, where Carla lives, in February 1st, 1991. So at this point, the sexual assaults that he was committing in Scarborough rapist stopped because he, well, didn't live in Scarborough anymore. On April 6, 1991, Bernardo commits his 12th and final rape that the police are aware of. And this one is in St. Catharines. The, again, the victim is young. She's 14 years old. But unlike the other attacks, this one occurred early in the morning and wasn't near a bus stop. So I think that Paul is out of his hunting ground and feels a little bit different. We find out that Carla seems to know about Paul being the Scarborough rapist and in some ways encourages this behavior, helps him out with it because she's eager to please. So what we find out that Carla is doing is in June of 1991, Carla is working at a pet shop. She's a veterinary assistant, but at this point she's working at a pet shop and Carla Homolka befriends a 15-year-old girl who also works in the pet shop. So in 1991, Homolka invites the teen, who we will refer to as Jane Doe because she's underage and that's how she referred, she's referred to in court transcript documents, um, and they have a quote-unquote girls' night. So after eating a night of them having shopping and going out to eat, Homolka takes John Doe, Jane Doe to 57 Bayview Avenue and begins to supply her with alcohol laced with halcyon which is a, a drug that's used to, to sedate animals. So after this Jane Doe loses consciousness, Hamaka calls Paul and tells him that his surprise wedding gift was ready. They undress the girl who was a virgin, and Bernardo, Paul, videotaped Carla as she raped the girl before Paul vaginally and anally penetrated her. The next morning, the teenager was nauseous. She believed her vomiting was due to having drinking alcohol for the first time. She did not realize that these people had knocked her unconscious and had raped her. So they again do this because the girl has no recollection of what happened. So at this point, they invite her to the home that they share in Port de Lucie, which is a district in the northwest kind of area of St. Catharines. Uh, situated on Lake Ontario. This is about a month later in August, and they quote-unquote ask her to spend the night. Jane Doe, whose identity, again, is still protected by law, stops breathing after she's drugged, and Bernardo begins to rape her. Carla calls 911 for help, but called back a few minutes later to say that everything was all right. The emergency crew recalled and without following up. So this time, she visits one more time in December of 1992. This time, Carla pressures her without the drugs and the alcohol to just have sex with Paul. She becomes very, very upset and just leaves. And so they don't have any. So she actually does not know anything has happened to her. So we're going to flash back a little bit to kind of the beginning of where things got very, very crazy with Paul and Carla. So, again, I said by 1990, Paul... Bernardo was spending large amounts of time with the Homolka family who really seemed to like him for Carly, even though he was six years older than her. Uh, they were engaged and he always flirted with their youngest daughter, Tam, uh, Tammy Homolka, and told her how she, pretty she was and just kind of like kid sister stuff. Uh, what Paul has not told them is that he lost his job as an accountant for PricewaterhouseCooper and was instead smuggling cigarettes across the U.S.-Canadian border. He had become obsessed with Tammy, 
Carla's younger sister, and began peeping in her window and entering her room to masturbate while she slept. Carla helped him by breaking the blinds in her sister's window so that he would have access for his Peeping Tom adventures. In July of 1990, Paul took Tammy across the border to get beer for a party. While there, Paul told his fiance that Tammy and he had gotten drunk and began making out. So keep in mind, Paul, Carla's fiance, who is six years older than her, is telling her that he not only took her younger sister across the border to buy alcohol, but then he got her drunk and began to make out with her. Six months before Carla and Tammy got married in 1991, Carla stole an anesthetic agent, Halothane, from the clinic. On December 23rd of 1990, Homolka and Bernardo administered sleeping pills to the 15-year-old Tammy in a rum and eggnog cocktail. After Tammy was unconscious, Paul and Carla undressed her and Carla applied the halothane-soaked cloth to her sister's nose and mouth. Carla had decided that she wanted to give Tammy's virginity to Paul for Christmas, as according to Carla in court documents later, Paul was disappointed at Carla not being a virgin when they first met, even though they had sex on the first night and were continuing to have this dominant submissive relationship in which she would do whatever he wanted. While Tammy's parents were upstairs sleeping and they allowed Tammy to stay up a little later because it was Christmas after all, the pair filmed themselves raping Tammy in the basement. Tammy, who is unconscious but breathing, begins to vomit. The pair tried to revive her, but then called 911, but not before they hid the evidence, dressed Tammy, and moved her into her bed in the bedroom. A few hours later, Tammy Homoka was pronounced dead at St. Catherine's General Hospital without having regained consciousness. After they're at the Homoka house, they move into their own bungalow, and this is where another murder happens. So early in the morning on June 15, 1991, Paul takes a detour through Burlington, which is halfway through Toronto and St. Catharines, to steal license plates because, remember, he's smuggling cigarettes. And he finds Leslie Mahaffey. Leslie is 14 years old, and she had missed her curfew after attending a funeral and was locked out of her house and had been able to find anyone who could, she could stay with overnight. So apparently... Leslie had broken curfew before, and was not allowed access to the house as a way to teach her a lesson. Paul approached her and told her he was looking to break into a neighbor's house. Leslie was unfazed by this and she asked if he had any cigarettes. So as Paul was like, yeah, I have a cigarette in my car. He leads her to the car and then he blindfolds her and forces her into the vehicle. So he drives her to the bungalow he shares with Carla and Port Lucy, And then he tells Homoka that they had a playmate. They then begin to videotape themselves torturing and sexually abusing Leslie Mahaffey, all while listening to Bob Marley and David Bowie. At one point, Bernardo said, you're doing a good job, Leslie, a damn good job. Then he added, the next two hours are going to determine what I do to you. Right now, you're scoring perfect. On another segment of tape played at Bernardo's trial, the assault escalated. Mahaffey cried out in pain and begged for Paul to stop. In the Crown's description of the scene, he was sodomizing her while her hands were bound with rope. Later, Mahaffey told Bernardo that her blindfold seemed to be slipping, 
an ominous development and it singled the possibility that she might be able to identify birth, both of her tor tormentors if she was permitted to live. The following day, Paul claims that Carla fed Leslie Mahaffey the lethal dose of the Halcyon and Homoka, Carla claimed that instead Paul strangled her. Whichever version of events you believe, the pair then put Leslie Mahaffey's dead body in their basement. They then went upstairs and had dinner with Carla's parents and her middle sister, their remaining daughter, Lori. After the Homokas and Lori had left, Paul and Carla decided that the best way to dispose of the evidence would be to dismember Leslie Mahaffey and encase each piece of her in cement. So Paul goes and buys a dozen bags of cement at the hardware store. Um, he kept the receipts, which would prove damning in his trial. And God damn it, that's very stupid. Um, and then he uses his grandfather's circular saw to cut the body. Uh, they made numerous trips to dump the cement blocks in Lake Gibson, which is about 18 kilometers south of Port Delusi. Um, at least one of the blocks weighed 200 pounds and pre proved to be beyond the pair's patience or abilities to sink. So basically, they just left it on the shore because they couldn't get it to the, to the water. And a father and son who were fishing um, discovered the body on June 29th of 1991. Uh, and they used uh, Leslie Mahaffey's orthodontic retainers to identify her body. On the afternoon of April 16th, 1992... Paul and Carla were driving through St. Catharines, basically cruising for other potential victims because they're monsters. Um, it was after school hours on the day before Good Friday. So essentially these kids probably weren't doing much of anything. The students were still going home, but by and large the streets were already empty. I'm assuming it was early release the day before Good Friday. So they passed by Holy Cross Secondary School, which is the main Catholic school in the city. And they spotted Christian Kristen French, a 15-year-old student who was walking pretty briskly because she lived that she's lived that very, very far from the school. So the couple pulls into the parking lot near another church, and Carla, who's this blonde, petite, friendly, upbeat looking white woman, gets out of the car and goes over to Kristen, which I'm sure does not really alert or alarm Kristen in any way. And she gets out with a map and pretends to need assistance and directions. So while Kristen is looking at this map with Carla, Paul attacked her from behind, brandishing a knife and forcing her into the front seat of the car. From the back seat, Carla is controlling the girl because she has her hair, her hands in her hair and is pulling Kristen's hair to control her and keep her from jumping out of the car. So Kristen took the same route home every day and it took her about 15 minutes to get home because she has a dog that she attends to in the evenings. So after she'd arrived, her should have arrived, her parents became convinced that something was wrong and they notified police. So within 24 hours, the Niagara Regional Police or the NRP had assembled a team and were searching the area and found several witnesses who had seen the abduction from different aspects. And this gave the police a fairly clear picture. In addition, one of Kristen's shoes was recovered from the parking lot. And this really gave the police the, you know, the thought that this is very serious and somebody's taking this girl. So as I mentioned before, this was the Thursday before Good Friday. So over the three days of Easter weekend, 
Paul and Carla Bernardo videotaped themselves as they tortured, raped, and sodomized Kristen French, forcing her to drink large amounts of alcohol and behave submissively to Bernardo. At Bernardo's trial later, uh, the prosecutor for the Crown, Ray Houlihan, said that Bernardo always intended to kill her because he never blindfolded her and she was capable of identifying him and Carla. While he was out buying pizza on the 18th, he was spotted by Carrie Patrich, who had who he had stalked in the previous month. So her report that he had stalked her was mishandled by police. Um, and it was noted by Judge Archie Campbell in his 1995 inquiry into the police investigation regarding Paul Bernardo, um, saying that basically if they had followed up on her report and went out to his house, then they actually could have possibly found Kristen French's body at the Bernardo house prior than them dumping her. So the following day after they murdered Kristen French, they went to uh, Carla Homolka's family's house for Easter dinner. So Carla later testifies that at her trial that Paul strangled French for exactly seven minutes while she watched. Um, Paul says that Carla beat Kristen French with a rubber mallet because she had tried to escape and that French ended up being strangled on a noose with around her neck and secured to a hope chest. Immediately thereafter, Carla went up to fix her hair. Um, they then left Kristen's nude body found in a ditch April 30th, 1992 in Burlington, about 45 minutes from St. Catherine's and a short distance from the cemetery where Leslie Mahaffey was buried. The body had been washed and it cut off her hair. It was originally thought that the hair had been removed as a trophy, but Carla later testified that they had just cut her hair to impede identification as it didn't encase her in cement or anything like that. What transpires after that is interesting because what we find out that in addition to all of these rapes and then the subsequent murders of Carla's sister Tammy and then Leslie Mahaffey and Christian French. Paul Bernardo was actually also beating his wife. He was beating Carla to the point that she almost was unrecognizable by some accounts. Paul's downfall. So the, Antar the Ontario government, after the death of Kristen French, formed a Green Ribbon Task Force. Basically, the hotlines and the base of operations were set out just outside of uh, St. Catharines, and the forensic experts from the FBI advised the task force. Paul and Carla, what we find out is during the investigation, when Kristen French was abducted, one of the tips that they received was that a woman remembered seeing a struggle going on in a car. And the lady was not familiar with like the make and models of cars and she thought it was a Camaro. So then the police started focusing on all the Camaros in the region. So when Paul's name surfaces about the rapes, because he's still raping people, keep in mind, <laughs> he doesn't stop until they move and then he does one more rape. So the police show up and they're like, hey, Paul, uh, so we got a tip that you might um, be a murderer or abducting women. What do you know about this? So the police and Paul's like sitting there and the police are like, OK, he's clean cut. He's good looking. He has a wife. He's intelligent. He's cooperative. His home is clean. And they also look out in the driveway and he drives a Nissan that doesn't look anything like a Camaro. So bless this lady's heart. She tried to help. But unfortunately, her not knowing anything about cars and the police getting tunnel vision 
Paul kind of slips through their grasp again, but not for long. Incredibly enough, the police in 1990 had taken DNA samples and blood samples for Paul, but because DNA at this point is a very, very new technology, they only have like one person to like collect the samples and another person who's trained to test them. And then they had an, obviously a backlog of many, many cases. And they also had about 5,000 samples that they had collected in this particular case with the Scarborough rapist. So needless to say, it took them a while to get through all of the samples. So in February of 1993, several years after the blood samples had been taken from Paul Bernardo, the forensic laboratory in Toronto finally got around to analyzing them. So the test proved conclusively that Paul Bernardo had raped three of the women that they had been able to get semen samples from. So reasonably speaking, had the laboratory just been a little bit faster or hired a few more people, Paul Bernardo would have been in jail for rape and not been out able to murder Leslie Mahaffey or Kristen French or, for that matter, Tammy Himolka. Detective Irwin, who is on the case, finds out, you know, hey, I've got a match. He puts Paul under surveillance. But what he learns is that Paul had already been put under surveillance and he was actually about to get arrested on assault charges in St. Catharines. The assault charges had been filed by his wife, Carla. In January of 1993, Carla shows up and she has two black eyes and serious bruises because Paul had beaten her with a flashlight and not one of those plastic dollar store flashlights, like the heavy hardware camping cop flashlight. One of her sister Lori's friends is a cop in Toronto and basically they encourage her to go to the police. The police are brought in, they take Carla to the hospital and this is kind of all before they had definitively gotten the word back from the lab that Paul is the rapist. In early February when the police investigation of Paul is intensified and they're still kind of putting their case together, the Toronto police and the Green Ribbon Task Force wanted to interview Carla because they wanted to fingerprint her and question her about a Mickey Mouse watch that she had that was very similar to a watch that belonged to Kristen French. So initially, the Toronto detectives interviewed Carla for almost five hours. But the kinds of questions they asked, Carla understood the police had tied together the Scarborough rapes with the murders in St. Catharines. So Carla was understandably nervous and told her uncle that Paul was the serial rapist and that he had killed Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey. At this point, Carla gets herself a lawyer. As a veterinary assistant, Carla had taken care with a cancer-stricken Dalmatian whose owner was the lawyer George Walker. So over a period of many interviews with Carla, George seemed to realize that she was not necessarily innocent in all of this, yet he didn't really understand at that point what her role had been. Been. So essentially, he felt like she had knowledge of the crimes, like she knew what was going on, and that maybe she had turned a blind eye or helped dump a body, but she wasn't, he wasn't entirely sure what the extent of her involvement was. He just knew that maybe she was being untruthful about the extent of it. He just didn't think that she was a murderer, I guess we would say. He knew that some kind of immunity deal would be desirable for her, but he wasn't really sure what he could negotiate on her behalf unless she was able to offer complete cooperation. So in mid-February, Paul is finally arrested in conjunction with both the Scarborough rapes and the murders of Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey. Uh, February 19th, the police executed search warrants for Paul and Carla's house and found quite a bit of evidence. 
Paul had written a description of every one of the Scarborough rapes, plus an extensive library of books and videos on sexual deviation, pornography, and serial killers. The police also found a home video that pretty much implicated Carla. Um, it was a quite explicit video who showed Carla engaged in sexual acts with two other women. A week later, George Walker and Mary Siegel, a plea bargain specialist for the attorney general, discussed the deal for Carla. So here is where shit gets horrible. Carla was given 12 years in prison for each of the two years, but the, for each of the two victims, but the sentences would be served concurrently. So for those of you who don't know, when certain sentences are served concurrently, that means that they are running together. So in this case, she would have gotten she 12 years for each victim would be 24 years. But because she's serving them concurrently, she just gets 12 years. She would be eligible for parole in a little over three years with good behavior. Um, the government even agreed to contact the parole board on Carla's behalf, pointing in exchange for this leniency, Carla would agree to tell the absolute truth about her involvement in the crimes and everything she knew about them. Carla agreed to this, I mean, because what other choice did she have? <laughs> so Carla, in the aftermath of all of this, writes her parents a letter where she confesses to helping Paul murder her sister Tammy. So I'm going to read this. Dear Mom, Dad, and Lori, this is the hardest letter I've ever had to write, and you'll probably all hate me once you read it. I've kept this inside myself for so long, and I just can't lie to you anymore. Both Paul and I are responsible for Tammy's death. Paul was, quote, in love with her and wanted to have sex with her. He wanted me to help him. He wanted me to get sleeping pills from work to drug her with. He threatened me physically and emotionally abused me when I refused. No words I can say can make you understand what he put me through. So stupidly, I agreed to do as he said, but something, maybe the combination of drugs and food she ate that night caused her to vomit. I tried so hard to save her. I am so sorry, but no words I can say can bring her back. I would gladly give my life for hers. I don't expect you to ever forgive me for I will never forgive myself. Carla, XOXO. Now, I... I don't know that you could ever come back from that. I'll be very honest. Like, I don't know what her parents' reaction was to that or her sister, but I just don't know that you can forgive that type of behavior and just be like, oh, okay, well, yeah, it's okay. I, I don't, it's, I feel like Carla, especially in knowing the way that they operated in this tandem, it seems as if maybe she was a bit manipulative and she was used to getting what she wanted. And for her, it was a way to emotionally manipulate her family in kind of, I guess, Carla's trial is pretty short. Like they just kind of breeze her through it because she is giving them all the information that she wanted. And they basically have her evaluated by a psychiatrist and a psychiatrist concludes that Carla knew what was happening, but quote, felt she was totally helpless and able to act in her own defense or in anyone else's defense. She was, in my opinion, paralyzed with fear and in that state became obedient and self-serving. So at the end of the trial, the media people left and only were allowed to report so few, a few of the details so that the jury pool would be selected in the future for Paul's trial wouldn't be tainted by information they heard or read before pertaining to Carla's trial. So Carla left the trial after receiving her agreed sentence and prepared herself for what was going to be a media circus, I'm sure. 
her husband's trial. Paul's trial was delayed for two years after his arrest. One of the major reasons for this delay was that Paul had placed his first lawyer, Ken Murray, in a very difficult ethical situation. So as we know, Paul and Carla had videotaped and meticulously documented all of these sexual deviant acts and murders. So what Paul does is put those tapes in the hands of his lawyer um, and believe that by doing so that he would never, they would never see the live date, right? The prosecutors would never get their hands on them. But the prosecutors knew about the videotapes from Carla because she told them about them and they had tapped um, Ken Murray's phones uh, ta or I would assume, I'm not sorry, I'm not not tapped Ken Murray, the lawyer's phones, but had basically wiretapped the conversations that Paul Bernardo was having for anybody that he called from jail, including his lawyer. So eventually the pressure increased and Ken Murray had to do something about the videotapes. So he turned them over to the prosecution and withdrew from the case. So a new lawyer, John Rosen, took his place. Um, and basically that series of... <laughs> Activity and rigmarole and dramaticness kind of led to a two-year delay. So in 1995, in May, uh, Paul Bernardo's trial and these uh, Paul Bernardo's trial begins, and these videotapes are used as critical pieces of evidence. So Paul Bernardo is facing two counts of first-degree murder, two counts of aggravated sexual assault, two counts of forcible confinement, two counts of kidnapping, and one count of performing an indignity on a human body for dismantling and encasing and cement the body of Leslie Mahaffey. So for the public who was denied access and information to Carla's trial for almost two years earlier, basically... It was a it was eye opening to them because they didn't know anything about what was going on, and so Ray Houlihan was the crown or prosecutor's lead prosecutor, just laid out in painstaking detail that basically Paula had first you know dominated Carla and she was reduced to a compliant victim through sexual and mental and physical abuse, and then because she couldn't shake free of Paul of Paul's control and she was scared that he would tell what she had done to her own sister she just agreed to agree to go along with the rapes and the murders of Christian Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey that they right they had seen her face they had seen her dressed demurely they had seen her wedding photos with her trial but none of them were expecting an x-rated tape from undoubtedly one of the country's most infamous women the video tape was geared towards sexually exciting Paul and Carla was talking about rape, you know, getting a 13 year old virgin for him to rape. And the whole dialogue was just her articulating Paul's sexual fantasies and the goal of bringing him to climax. And Carla always played the role of a sex slave and Paul was the king. So as more of these videotapes surface and they then see the videotape of Leslie and Kristen and the Jane Doe, the jury was provided enough evidence that they really knew that Paul was a horrible person and sexually depraved. Um, and if that was not enough, uh, prosecutor Houlihan also made Carla good on the stand and elaborate what the jurors had just seen and heard. So she had to sit on the stand and describe in great detail the abuses that she had suffered, um, as well as what he had done to these other women. When the defense had their turn, 
uh, defense attorney John Rosen basically attacked Carla's credibility. Um, he wanted to show that she was not a victim, but that she was a willing participant. And I think that he was at least successful in showing Carla to not be really a morally upstanding person and to also show that really he felt like she had no remorse for her part in these crimes. Um, in particular, they talk about Kristen French's murder during this time. And the defense points to the fact that basically Carla pressed Paul to murder Kristen French so they could spend Easter dinner with Carla's parents. So she sat there and watched him strangle this poor girl to death and then she left out to go blow dry her hair. So if it was not immediately clear at the trial, it became clear it became very clear shortly after that Carla had really manipulated the the government and the crown into giving her, you know, a really really great deal uh, in in exchange for her cooperation and it had to be one of the worst deals that the Canadian government had ever made to a criminal witness because she was in fact a criminal and I don't think that they knew the depths of her involvement again they just allowed her to have carte blanche and tell them everything in exchange for a 12-year sentence when really they could have just offered the maximum penalty and agreed not to maybe kill her, which I don't, again, I'm from the United States. And so my, I don't know that, I don't, I don't think Canada has a death penalty, but I think that whatever their highest one life in prison or what, I think that they could have offered her 25 years or 30 years or 40 years. And she would have had to agree because what are the choice do you have when it's all on videotape? So I think it's interesting that they were willing to give her such a, essentially lucrative cakewalk of a prison sentence in exchange for her corroboration of something that they had on videotape. And when watching the videotapes, the public was outraged because it clearly proved that they were both criminals who both needed to be in jail for the rest of their lives. So regardless of Carla's degrees of guilt or innocence and the deal she made with the authorities, it didn't save Paul from the outrage that he kindled in the minds of jurors. So on September 1st, 1995, Paul Bernardo was convicted of all the charges against him regarding the kidnappings, the rapes and murders of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. He also faced trials in the death of Tammy Homolka and the serial rapes in Scarborough. Under Canadian law, Paul Bernardo can apply for parole after 25 years in prison, but it's unlikely that he would be in successful in any real bid for getting out of jail. He would be considered a, a strong candidate for reoffense, and under Canadian law, there's not really much of a chance of him getting out of jail. Carla serves some of her time, and on March 8th, 2001, Carla is officially denied for early statutory release. Um, the parole board, after reviewing the case, ordered that Paul uh, that Carla remained detained past her July release eligibility date. The quote board is satisfied that if released, you are likely to commit offense causing the death or serious harm of another person. For the expiration of your sentence, you are now serving, said the order. The families of her victims delighted with the results, according to Tim Danson, their lawyer. According to the report, basically, even though the Crown cut her a deal for 12 years the parole board was like no girl we know that you're a fucking monster and a criminal and while you're only in for 12 years you're going to serve all 12 of those years and also added that 
there was no way that as long as she should be here. The law in Canada also requires that the board review the case every year after her statutory release date until the expiration of her sentence. So that was July 2005. So Carla said that she would not contest the ruling and she indicated that after it was over, she was going to leave Canada um, and move somewhere else, which to my knowledge is absolutely what she did. So after Carla Homolka is released from prison, she actually changes her name and gets married and moves. Carla has children. She is living a full life. She gets out July 24th, 2005, and she just is out. Like, it's interesting. Um, So Carla has come up kind of in, I guess, I wouldn't say popular culture, but certainly in the news because um, she wanted to volunteer at her children's school. And basically the people of Canada were like, no girl, you can't volunteer here. We know that you raped underage girls. Why would we allow you to be around our children? Um, so I thought that was very interesting that she thought that she was going to get away with that. So that is the brutal Canadian case of the serial killers Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, also known as Scarborough Rapist, also known as the School War Killer, or known collectively as the Ken and Barbie Killers. Um, they were given that last name based on their blonde hair and blue eyes and really good looks. That... Carla was able to present herself in such a way as a victim that she was able to only get 12 years because I think that most people would agree that's not enough time, essentially considering that you were a willing participant in these murders. Now, granted, you were beaten and abused and maybe felt like you couldn't get away or get away from this person. So I think that is somewhat a contributing factor because she is a victim. She's a victim of domestic abuse, but there are plenty of people who are victims of domestic violence and abuse who are also not murderers. So with that being said, um, I want to thank you for tuning in to this episode long awaited. I'm so sorry that it took me so long to get it out. Um, so I want to get into um, podcast spotlight for the week is going to be. Um, so it is a weekly podcast and it's called One Mike. One Mike is a black history podcast. Um, it is really good. I've been listening to it, catching up on it. They are a weekly podcast. They put out some really good content. You can find them anywhere that you find uh, dope podcasts. So there are Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you know, Podbean, all Google Podcasts, whatever, wherever you can listen to, wherever you get your podcasts from, you can check out One Mike uh, Black History Podcast. Um, if you want to follow them on Twitter, that is at One Mike History, at O-N-E-M-I-C-H-I-S-T-O-R-Y. Um, again, dope ass show. Please go check that out. I'm going to have links to their show in the description. Um, if you have been watching Netflix as all of us have been, because we've been stuck in the house. Um, they recently did an episode on, uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, uh, and where they discuss the history and the real Ma Rainey. So if you watched the show slash movie and are, hungry for more information to kind of learn more about the story behind that, that is an excellent place to get that information. 
Um, if you would like to get in touch with me or the show, then you can contact me personally at VJ underscore Burton. That is my Twitter. The show's Twitter is at Murder V Pod. That is V with two E's. Uh, you can contact me there. I'm always willing to talk to you guys about things that I love, including true crime. I'm going to try to get better about posting so that we can talk to each other. Um, and you can tell me things that are old, new, that you think are interesting that I should be talking about. Um, because I love being able to share these types of things with the true crime community. I don't have any announcements. My name is V, and this has been Murder V Wrote, and thank you.